0: My guest on today's special episode of A Little Wiser is filmmaker Patty Dillon. Patty's documentary There Will Be No Stay featured last week's guest, Dr. Alan Alt. I wanted to have her on to share her deeply personal and thought provoking experience inside the world of capital punishment. We talk about her extensive research, the cold calls, and the highs and lows of the seven years it took her to make the film. Through it all, Patty stayed resolute in her mission to shed light on a subject that is so often shrouded in silence and controversy. From attending a film festival next to Randy Gardner, the brother of the last man to be executed by firing squad, to forming a close friendship with two ex-executioners who you will hear her refer to as Terry and Craig Baxley, Bax, Patty sheds light on the complex moral questions surrounding the death penalty and the emotional toll experienced by those involved. We'll explore how this project pushed her to her limits, both as a filmmaker and a compassionate human being. It may just leave you questioning your own beliefs and perceptions. And now, Patty Dillon. Patty Dillon, hello and welcome to A Little Wiser.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's really good to be here. How would
0: you introduce yourself?
1: I am an independent filmmaker, researcher, storyteller, endlessly driven by my curiosity.
0: And you used to be a stunt double and appeared on
1: Dawson's Creek,
0: which I happen to love that about you.
1: (laughs) I did. Dawson's was my very first show. So I was doing stunts during the day and then writing this at night. And that's when There Will Be No Stay came in to play.
0: That is what brought us together. Your film, There Will Be No Stay. And this conversation is going to be a follow up to last week's episode. Mm. And my conversation with Alan, the origin of our relationship was essentially me stalking you. (laughs) I learned about the film. I was so drawn to the subject matter for many reasons, but primarily it was something I had never even thought about. Mm, This mm -hmm. idea of all of the people that are impacted by executions in this country, and the death penalty, mm-hmm. and how far-reaching. Mm-hmm. And that was what you explored so beautifully in this film. Thank you. Today, I want to talk about the journey of making the film. Tell me the story of, first of all, how you even became curious about this subject, why this subject, and how and when you decided to make this film
1: yeah so those are all great questions i'm in college i'm 19 i'm studying theater and music and i'm at a nail salon and i happen to be sitting next to a woman who was a prison guard and she was a prison at the lincoln state penitentiary where they had executed john jubert who was kind of a notorious serial killer there in nebraska that had everybody sort of terrified in fact he was still on the loose when we moved there from san diego and so when she told me that she was a prison guard, we ended up talking long after our nails were done and she was saying that she had sort of felt like she lost her femininity and that she had actually become close. And so already there are these complex dynamics of you know, bonding with the, the killer in a sense. And, and I remember asking her, well, what about his execution and, and, and who does that? And she said to me that there was a, a person in a room that could not see what was going on, but they got like a a green light where they would sort of just hit a bunch of buttons and they didn't know which button was going to be the, the one that that killed the condemned, but then they would just get like a red light that would say, don't hit the buttons anymore. And that kind of just blew my mind wide open that there was this weird consideration for the psychology of a person. They were asking to kill someone who killed something else. There was something fascinating and dark and scary and um, all wrapped into that. But of course, you know, I had this comedy trajectory, so it hadn't really occurred to me to ever pursue that. And then I had met a gentleman who was a surgeon and we were having a conversation and he mentioned there must have been capital punishment or something that came up in a paper or for whatever reason we were talking about execution. And he told me that they would sanitize the arm of the condemned before they would execute them. And again, this was just crazy to me. So here comes this, this topic again. And I, this hasn't ever happened to me before. I've been writing every day since I was 12. I journal. and But never have I had anything like this happen to me in a way of floodgates, and these just floodgates opened i wrote a i sketched out a series in like 4 hours it was called dichotomy of death and the first one out of the gate was going to be called to kill the killer we were going to explore the executioner and then we were going to do another episode about recycling organs of the condemned i just went down this rabbit hole of every facet of the process that i found to be so dark and disturbing and just dichotomies everywhere and so to kill the killer ended up being my primary focus of research, which was execution from the executioner's perspective. Now, that is what became There Will Be No Stay. It ended up being such a heavy lift. It took me seven years to make. So the series got, I still have all that research, but the film would take seven years. And so from that point... I had access to funding, but the funding was going to be dependent on finding an executioner. And the further I got into this research, the only ones I could find had taken their own lives. And in that sense, I just knew that there had to be others out there that were suffering in in silence.
0: So you clearly are called to, drawn to now, committed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to making this film. And... In the opening of the film, you have some statistics on title cards, which blew me away. Mm -hmm. But 1,238, this is um, executions in this country, 1,238 by lethal injection, 158 by electrocution, 11 by gas chamber, three by firing squad, and three by hanging. Mm -hmm. And we are in the top five. Countries mm-hmm. and executions per year behind China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to see it really was jaw-dropping. Mm-hmm. So you have this idea. Film financing is very hard to come by. People are committed if you can, in fact, find and develop trust and get the agreement for people to be in the film. But not only are you relying on outside funding, but I know you sold your car, (laughs) got a small (laughs) apartment. I mean, you really, really are invested in sharing this story.
1: Yeah. So at that point, it was just all day, every day research. I was literally cold calling People that I thought might be related to one of, I mean, it was, I had no idea what I was doing first and foremost, but I was just following my curiosity. And the more I learned, the more I had to know, but I had never made a film before. So in my mind, I still need to hire a writer. I still need to hire a director. I've got some money. So I'm just really producing it. And it would take me a year and a half of full-time research and, and a bunch of people along the way, I would get close. Like I found a warden who was like, you will never find an executioner that will talk to you or appear on camera. Um, the one that he hired would wear a hood. He would be picked up in an unmarked band. Like the more I found out about it, I was like, people need to know this. What this is crazy. And so, um, I just had to get really creative in my search of how I was going to find these guys. And some of the people that were advocating against the death penalty also wanted $2,000 a day to interview with me. And I'm like, we're at such a grassroots. Like, I can't I can't do that. Right. So um, there was I decided I was going to look into some of the different um nonprofit groups that are you know anti death penalty and see if maybe i could find anybody involved in that arena that maybe knew some i just wasn't really sure but i knew that i knew they were out there and i knew that i would find them and somebody that i had called one of the coalitions he said i know of an attorney representing a couple of executioners that that haven't talked yet, but I think they might, and they're in the middle of a lawsuit with the state. And so I called their attorney, the who's now passed away, and he I had a call with him, and he said, these guys haven't talked to anybody, but I think I think I can get them to talk to you so through this lawyer mm-hmm. find
0: two individuals. Mm-hmm. And now I know it's about establishing a relationship, establishing Mm -hmm. trust. So who are the two people, if you can bring them to life for us? And what does that time between the first phone call and them sitting down to share their story with you on camera, what does that that take?
1: Uh, I get a little emotional thinking about it because – there had to be so much trust. You know, here I am. I've never done it before. I think I've got the money. They're sharing this information with me that that they haven't shared with other people. And it was a tremendous honor and one that I took so seriously to the point where it became my obsession that there was not an option to fail these guys. But I still didn't know how I was going to pull it off. I'd never written a movie. I had never. And so there's Terry, who is this incredible gentleman. He's funny and has just some of the most enduring quirks. And of course, you know, I'm barely five feet after Pilates and the, both of these guys are just, just tall strapping. So it begins with these phone calls where we get to know each other and I let them know like what I find fascinating or it just really began with what are you comfortable telling me and and really being forward with boundaries. Like I never wanted to push them too far. And I always had to give them the space to go. And so one of the things that I remember about that time was that conversations were intense. Sometimes they would last for hours and then a friendship developed. And both of these guys are just, you know, big strapping guys and to connect with that vulnerability with them and how this has affected them. It was, it was palpable how this experience has affected them as human beings was the reason I had to tell the story. And so they ended up having a little more belief than I did in myself where then when I would have times of doubt or frustrating times, as you know, filmmaking is, is an uphill, almost role, you know, it's just uphill almost the entire time, right. With minor windfalls, but there's always something else to navigate now, getting back to your question about you know, them and, and establishing that trust, it happened pretty quickly, and I just made myself available to them all the time. We would have several phone calls before we would meet face-to-face, and that was pretty incredible and just really humbling, right? But there were times when one of them would disappear for months at a time, and I would go, this is over. And I remember that very vividly, like constantly needing to adapt and always being in fear because of this intense emotional journey that they were on and and all of this PTSD that they were navigating from not feeling heard and from not being believed and for being called liars and Here, these guys were, you know, at the top of their game, at the top of their career. And so the the way that it affected them, I just, it had to, it had just had to be, it had to be told and I was willing to do whatever needed to be done to do it. And that ended up including a move to the Midwest to learn how to produce it.
0: You know, it was really interesting in my conversation and learning more about this, that the death certificates say homicide, right? And so Mm -hmm. many of these individuals identify with that, that they are in fact killers. So I'm curious how many executions had each of them been involved with? And when you say what they were going through and sharing what they were going through, Mm -hmm. what in fact were they experiencing? So if you can speak to their actual job in the execution, how many they had been involved with and what you were observing and hearing as the impact
1: on their mental health and their lives. Mm -hmm. So you're right. And that death certificate listed as homicide was one of the facts uh, that I found before I met them that like had me spinning, right? It just the more I uncovered. So they gave me. I'll never forget this. I was going through this in a hotel room. They gave me a list of the people that they had executed per their attorney. The It was listed out because of their case or they, he had information on the names and the dates. I think it was Terry that gave that information to me and one of my questions for each of them, and these men are very different. They would have never been friends. They would have never been in the same social circles. But here they are connected for life because of taking life together. Like that was very compelling to me. One is African American, one is Caucasian, like there were all of these dynamics, they had totally different experiences rising in the ranks of the prison system. So. One of my questions was, you know, is it a promotion? Is it a demotion? What what does it mean? How do you become an executioner? And do you know who you're executing? And they both had extremely different strategies with, with this process. And one of them did, in fact, they weren't supposed to. They weren't supposed to know anything about the person they were executing. But one of them would find out and would go over kind of the case. And the other one did not. I don't have a clear number of how many each did because that number is not terribly clear even with them in terms. I think there was a, I had 12 cumulatively all together and some of them they did together and Bax, I believe did some on his own before Terry came on, but I do know one of the stories that Bax shared with me was during during the, the, the protocol, the lethal injection is, is pushing seven syringes and there's a saline push in between to avoid the chemicals from mixing in the lines and blocking and potentially causing a botched execution. And so there were times where one of them just couldn't do it and the other one ended up pushing all seven syringes. Another aspect. So, so this really manifested in backs as like anger and rage. You know, if you're going to teach me how to do it, I got it. You got to teach me how to do it. Right. Right. So there's a whole other dynamic. And And also, you know, where's the counseling afterwards? And it was all just, it was traumatic. And, you know, Terry would say that his uniform was like his mask. And so he told me that he would, you know, go home afterwards. And and of course, you know, they're, they have their family men, they have wives. And, and, you know, he said that he would need to keep his uniform on for a while until he was ready to kind of take it off. He referred to it as like his mask. And so until he had processed what had gone on, he would leave his uniform on after work. And they really only had each other to talk to about it. And so they know that this is hard and dark and they have each other. Well, then a gentleman that had been an executioner before them taking his own life and he wrapped himself up in a blanket and shot himself in the head and tragically, you know, not to skip forward, but I had to unlock picture of the film multiple times to add somebody else that had taken their own life, including the the attorney that introduced me to them and Paula Cooper, the 15-year-old girl who had been sentenced to death. She killed herself shortly after getting out of prison. It's It's just tragic. It's just tragic.
0: And the other thing that was so illuminating to me was... It makes sense that the executioners would have all of this trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Which you're speaking to. But the impact and how far reaching and all of the individuals that perhaps you wouldn't think about or even know that they they play a role mm-hmm. in this act of of homicide and taking a person's life. Mm-hmm. So beyond the executioners themselves, who are the people, the players that are involved, and what did you learn from
1: them? Yeah, so one of the things I I knew that I needed to do with this film was to cast it in a sense that I was building all of the different players of an execution team. So, Dr. Alt is the warden, Carol Pickett, who had, was a chaplain. And so, you've got the warden, you've got the chaplain, and then, you know, these two gentlemen who were the executioners. Now, right in the throes of that, because of the way that sentencing works. In some states, the person who is condemned can choose their method of execution between one thing or another. So right in the throes of them, you know, trying to master lethal injection or, you know, figure that out, there's someone that is going to be executed that requests the electric chair. And that requires a third person. There was one gentleman from the Associated Press who has now witnessed over 500 executions. I did not interview him. He was extremely busy when we were when we were at Huntsville at an execution. Um, but he is someone who goes often, just doesn't seem to have a problem with it at all. I definitely found in Texas, there was more of an appetite for it, even talking to locals. It was very much part of their culture. and And oftentimes the people were proud of it, but not the ones that were actually involved in it.
0: So the executioners themselves, what specifically with the PTSD, you know, what are they sharing with you? Is it nightmares? Is it flashbacks, rage, anger, depression? What are what mm-hmm. are they telling you about the impact it's having in their lives, in their relationships? Mm-hmm. hmm Or just moving through the world.
1: Yeah. So they were again, it manifested differently in each of them. Terry, he had just dedicated, you know, more than two decades of his life to the system that essentially, you know, broke him and and sent him off, right? He He just felt ultimately really betrayed. And he would have given his life for that job. And he said that to me often. So you go home and you can't quite express what you've just experienced. He didn't want to bring heavy stuff into his family. And so with Terry, it was just a lot. It was extremely heavy in the sense of I'm injured and nobody's believing me. Right. Like, I just really remember that coming up a lot in our conversations. Backs just had a really difficult time. Bax was angry and had expressed, you know, he understands why people just are kind of losing it out in society. He said he just, he felt so angry, you know, he wasn't properly trained, essentially, you know, kind of set up to fail. And then, you know, accused of being weak when the job was affecting him you know we have to consider how this is affecting other people we have to consider the insanity of this practice and i did not go into making this film as an anti death like i just was curious obviously i i don't i don't believe killing anything is is right that's but i didn't come into it with an agenda as any kind of an activist even a co-producer that I met on another music video who ended up being a super important part of this film getting made. She said right away, I just want you to know I'm totally for the death penalty going into this. I'm like, hey, what you think about the death penalty is none of my business. So let's make this movie and let's give these guys a, a kick-ass place to share their story and let's get it out there. And I don't think it was six months in and she was like, I, I'm a, I totally have t- changed my mind. I can't even imagine. And so I think it's really not a lack of compassion by people it's a lack of education. And I think when people know, when they consider this whole other side of it, this whole other aspect, this is affecting people. There's no way to teach people not to kill people by killing other people. It's it's just, so within that time frame, I got to meet people that had been released from death row after 23 years, like this one decision to follow this story completely changed the course of my life. And it's the most important work that I had done so far for sure.
0: And I know you also had a chance to hear the stories of the families of the condemned, the families who lost their loved ones to execution. Mm -hmm. What did you learn from them?
1: Well, there's an intense need for, I think, closure and that sort of idea that what goes around comes around or, you know, my first day as a film director was at an execution and that was the only execution where there were actually people gathered chanting for the death of the condemned. Mostly at the execution, it was people that were against the death penalty that were, you know, And so at that first execution, it was the execution of Eric Robert. It was in South Dakota. I got to talk to some of the people that were there gathering that were chanting an eye for an eye and just witnessing that juxtaposition. And and then people, you know, sort of just saying like, he's got it coming. Like there's this sense of if this person is executed, I'm going to feel a sense of relief And I think if that sense of relief is coming from, they're no longer going to hurt somebody or whatever, people have a, it's a very complex, it's a very complex and controversial issue and for a reason. But I can tell you that the reason Bill Pelkey's story was so important is because compassion, like when I started researching people that had forgiven the person that killed their loved one, And there are so many out there. I found just one after another, after another that had said, like, let's stop this, right? Because then we're going to create another grieving mother. And I think when we take a, a, a wider perspective and we see how many people this one act affects, then it's undeniable that it's not getting us anywhere closer to calm waters, right? It's not getting it's it's not working. We're not eliminating crime, we're not eliminating murder. It's not it's not doing any of the things that that our politicians are telling us. And I I for good reason kept politics out of it. I wanted this to be a story about the human experience and how devastating this practice is for the people that we task in carrying it out.
0: I want to go back to the execution you attended. I believe you were on the outside of the prison. Can you tell me about that experience? What are you seeing? What happens?
1: Okay. So this is day one of being a film director, day one of production on There Will Be No Stay. We're in South Dakota. I am currently, at the time, base camped in Omaha. So I've got a small crew. And we head up to South Dakota. The state had not executed anybody for a while The guy that was getting executed had murdered a prison guard on his birthday when he had come in to volunteer when the prison guard was trying to escape. So, you know, it was a it was a suddenly this prison came alive. Like it was just something that was always drive by. Nobody notices. And suddenly you pull up and there's literally a guard I imagine it's like a wedding. Are you there for the groom or are you there for the, they're literally like telling you where to park, whether you're protesting or which side you're on. And we just went in and had our, we kind of tailgated. It was, it was surreal. I couldn't believe that there was a man that, that we knew was going to be executed and it was going to be done legally. And all of these people were brought together for this insane process. And so I just had to really ground and go, okay, I, I got to tell the story. So I had a camera guy grab some shots of people holding hands. And as the day progressed, then the candlelight vigil started and people were talking and, and singing. And so there was a reverence of of community where there were people singing Hymns for the condemned, and then you had people holding hands in a big circle, chanting an eye for an eye. And then there was another group of people that weren't really sure why they were there. They weren't really for it, they weren't really against it. They just felt like they needed to be there. There were, I was the only documentary filmmaker. There were news crews. It hadn't happened in a really long time. It was a really big deal. So we go, I see these people that had just witnessed an execution, and I can't really put into words the heaviness that they all carried. And these were people that were there, victims' family, and here we got to go in and set up for a press conference where they're going to talk about why they, the family, and that he will no longer be able to hurt people. And then I interviewed the Associated Press there. That was going to be his first execution. He had never witnessed one before, and he was really nervous. I talked to him beforehand, and then afterwards, he looked like a different person. And when it was all said and done, we were speechless as a crew. I think we went like straight to the bar at that point at the end of the night and just kind of sat quietly and then talked about it and saw it on the news. And, and that was, that was day one. That was day one of production.
0: And it's hard to explain to people in particular with documentary films where the subjects are not actors, they're real humans Mm -hmm. and you really, I think most filmmakers, you immerse yourself in the subject matter and the people and the stories. And I think in my experience to the point where it's almost, I don't know if obsessive is there, but it's all consuming. It is not a nine to five situation. Right. Um, And there's a, the taxing end of the, the stress and the logistics and the finances and the distribution, but there's also this emotional weight of these relationships and absorbing everything Mm -hmm. that's happening. How did you cope? I mean, was it maladaptive? Were you like meditating? Were you self-medicating? What is the impact on you as a person?
1: So all of it, I did have a really solid spiritual practice. I did meditate every day but I was absolutely self-medicating. I was (laughs) self-medicating imposter syndrome, but mostly the the, the pressure I had put on myself here, I had told these investors that I, you know, was going to make this film, and it was going to be worth their investment. I needed to do a, a tell, you know, most importantly, I needed to do the stories justice of the people that trusted me with them, right. So I don't think any of the investor, they were invested in the story, too. I don't think any of them anticipated like getting rich. That's not what documentaries are for, right. But there was a I just was sipping and I was self-medicating with wine and I was just I was sipping while I was writing. I was sipping when we were doing working lunches and I had lived in the Midwest. So I was no longer doing stunts, so I didn't have that pressure to stay super fit and I ended up blowing out my adrenals. I was so sick. By the time the film was over, when we were doing the festival circuit, I had gained 75 pounds. I was in a state of um, wired and tired all the time. I was never able to sleep more than three hours at a time. I would go to bed with a glass of wine by my head. Um, I was highly, highly functioning. Um, But then when it was over, like I knew I had to pull a Hail Mary. I was unrecognizable. And I wasn't able to really celebrate any of the success of the film. I just knew I needed to get healthy and I needed to get healthy stat, even if that meant taking a break from film. And I just kind of crashed afterwards when it was when it was all said and done. I gave everything away and downsized to a backpack. I gave up my studio and decided I was going to simplify my life so I could just kind of write and go see what was next and travel and see friends. Because like you said, I don't think obsessive is, is really too big of a word when you are making a documentary film. And I used to laugh with the guys and say I was married to two executioners and pregnant with their documentary. I mean, everything I did every day, all day revolved around that film for seven years. I lost friendships over it, my health, but I don't regret it. I don't regret it. And now, you know, it's like, okay, how can I do better this time and feeling better and healthy and totally reset and what not to do, you know, uh, this time around. And so, yeah, I don't regret it, but um, I definitely was self-medicating uh, in, a, in a pretty big way.
0: And when you make a film and it takes years and you have hopes and dreams and intentions for it. What was the reactions, some of the things that people told you after seeing it? Do you feel, I know it made an impact, it made an impact on me when I saw it, but what was it like to see it out in the world at festivals with people watching it?
1: You know, there's one moment that stands out, and this is perhaps the most poignant moment for me, it, it had its world premiere. I was lucky enough. I had Susan Sarandon kind of championing the film. She'd plug it on social media and, and give me a quote to use on our poster. And so through that, a bunch of people in, in the death penalty circles came to attend. And you mentioned Firing Squad. And one of the, the last person to be executed by Firing Squad happened in Utah. And a gentleman named Randy Gardner... Was the brother of the man executed and randy came to big sky documentary film festival and i met him and he said that he stood up and what he said was my brother was the last person executed by firing squad and i've carried my whole life this rage for the executioners that killed my brother and after watching this film I now realize that the men that killed my brother are probably struggling today and I hope that they are okay. And I can't tell you what that, how that affected me in a sense of like that alone made it worth it. And I know that sounds cliche or like, oh, my film, if it impacts one person, but like in that moment, there was a tremendous amount of resolve that it doesn't matter what gets thrown my way at any film festival or Q&A or anybody that, you know, maybe thinks I have an agenda or disagrees or whatever. It didn't really matter. It didn't really matter. And and there was a change at that moment where I was able to just let it all go. Whatever shit was going to come my way, I'm just going to let it go. And, and, and I did my job. The film did its job. And so I was able to put it down and and move on. And so, yeah, it was a, it was an incredible experience. I love that you had that moment. And I think that's,
0: it's, it's the mystery and the magic of film because it goes out into the world and you have no idea who watches it, how it impacts. And for most of the people you never will. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have faith that it finds the right people But you don't get back in general some sort of metrics of the impact because it's hearts and minds and the film is distributed widely if we're lucky. So I I get that very much what Mm -hmm. you're saying. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about where you are in your life today in such a different place Ah! than. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you've transformed your Body, your location, you're a minimalist. I mean, it, yeah. getting to know you has been so fun, but still deeply committed to telling stories that matter and stories that the world needs to hear. So tell me how you were changed, you know, what your life looks like now, and the film that you are currently. Creating yeah, for the world.
1: Thank you. Initially, I was like, I'm going to pick that comedy back up, and and I did, and I wrote it, and then COVID happened, and like many people, I was locked down. And I was like, oh, how do I want to spend? the rest of my life. What does my day look like? What am I doing? What am I writing? What am I documenting? I knew I was going to be writing and I knew I have a deep love for research and storytelling. So I was like, I'm going to go back to school and finish a degree that I started in the nineties. And I wanted to pivot to marine conservation because the ocean is my big, great love. And I had been away from it for so long living in the Midwest. I started just researching i thought i took a conservation class a jane goodall masterclass i was like binging on those masterclasses in a, and i realized that science needed communicators long story short there's this credible species of work up here called the southern resident killer whales that are critically endangered and so i thought maybe i could learn how to communicate and plug into a nonprofit organization so I came up to Seattle, rented a little studio by the lake, and have a paddleboard and my dog. And I'm in second year of development on a film called A Killer Journey. And it is about an orca called Tokate who sadly and tragically passed away last month in captivity, but she was closer than ever to returning to her native waters where her endangered pod and mother still swim. Her mother's in her 90s or the Orca L25 that they believe is her mother, Ocean Sun, is is well into her nineties. And the story really was following her journey after being in captivity for 53 years, coming back to the Salish Sea and returning to a sea sanctuary. And now we're really looking at the need to end captivity and also the need to save her southern resident endangered family. We, we need to replenish the salmon population here and breach some dams. And it's just a really important, a really important story. And there, there are a lot of people telling the story. So like, I don't have that same pressure. Like if I fall apart tomorrow, her story will be told, but it's a really important story. And I'm loving the research also heavy captivity stocks, right? So there's that dark element that I found myself back in, but the film is really educational. It's inspirational. And I want the audience to really get fired up about how to move forward. How do we transcend captivity? How can we make the connection that no matter where we live in the world, every choice we make has an effect on the ocean and we can't live without the ocean. And so that's where I'm pivoting. That's where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. And this is my first film out of the gate in that space and we're redoing the whole thing with donations. <laughs> so that's a whole new a whole new beast for for this one.
0: Well, for listeners who clearly they're in love with you now, that have listen <laughs> and clearly I can endorse your talent as a Thank filmmaker you. and storyteller. So, for those who want to support you, where can they learn more about the film? And yeah, where can they? Support Thank
1: you. Me? Yeah. So, I've got a I've got a PayPal campaign running through December thirty first. We are going to take whatever we raise and make the film with that. Jeremy, who shot my first film, is our cinematographer. Nobody's taking a salary. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at a killer journey film, and there's a link there uh, to donate to our PayPal site. And then we're going to be doing some really fun pop-up events in Seattle featuring a Toki Mai Tai, a drink we created in her honor where people can ask me questions. They can donate and just really make it an effort and in honor of this remarkable orca and her incredible endangered family here. So we're excited. Thank you. We will link in our show notes
0: where listeners, you are listening now to make it easy And Patty, thank you for your work. Thank you for the seven years you spent making There Will Be No Stay, which has led to me being able to learn about and now share this story with my community. You're awesome. Thank you. And I am deeply grateful to you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for all of your support. It's really been great.
0: Okay. Thank you. All right. Take care. To support Patty's work, look for the link in our show notes. We've also included links to There Will Be No Stay. Thanks for joining us on this special episode of A Little Wiser, and take care of yourselves and one another.
1: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.